Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we're starting a study of the book of Philippians. We'll be introducing that book and looking at the first two verses of the first chapter. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. As I said, we're starting a new study in the epistle to the Philippians. So you can turn there in your Bibles, uh, Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin by looking at some background about this letter um, and about the city of Philippi where the letter is directed. This is a letter from Paul to a church in, as I said, the city of Philippi which was in modern-day eastern Greece, near the coast, part of Macedonia at the time. It was a Roman colony and a Roman military outpost on the main Roman road that ran from Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, to the western coast of Greece on the Adriatic Sea. This road connected up to the heel of Italy via a sea route. So this route was used by the Roman military to shuttle troops if need be. It was also used for commerce, and Paul himself used that road um, in traveling around Macedonia. Uh, In fact, Thessalonica is on the same road. The church at Philippi was a church that Paul himself founded. The history about what happened to Paul in Philippi can be found in Acts chapter 16. I'll summarize it briefly. When Paul was in what is uh, today Western Turkey, Paul was called by God in a dream to go to Macedonia, which, as I said, was uh, modern-day Greece. He obeyed God, and so Paul and Silas and Luke got on a boat to Greece. Having landed, he went inland to the largest city in the region where he landed, uh, which was Philippi, which is, uh, was about um, 10 miles off the coast. There he met a group of Jewish women who were praying by the river on the Sabbath. Though Philippi was a decent-sized town, there apparently were not enough Jews there to form a synagogue, so the Jews met by the river on the Sabbath. Paul preached the gospel to them, and a woman named Lydia and her household became believers in Christ. Later, Uh, In the city of Philippi, Paul exorcised a demon from a slave girl who was a fortune teller. The owner of the slave girl was angry because she wasn't able to tell fortunes anymore. So the owner stirred up a crowd against Paul and Silas and brought them before the authorities and accused them basically of disturbing the peace. And that was something that made the Romans mad. All they wanted was just to keep the peace in whatever towns they were occupying. So they beat Paul and Silas, and they threw him in prison. That night, there was an earthquake which opened the prison doors and loosened the chains of the prison uh, of the prisoners. And the guard was about to kill himself, actually, because he thought all the prisoners had escaped. But none of the prisoners had left. They were too busy praying and singing hymns along with Paul and Silas. So the end result was the the jailer himself became a Christian and all of his household. The next day, Paul was released by the magistrate in Philippi, 
when Paul told them that he was a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship was especially important to the uh, Philippians. They took some pride that they were an official Roman colony because the town was a military outpost. So those born in Philippi at the time were considered Roman citizens. For that reason, Roman citizenship was a big deal to them. And this comes into play later in the book of Philippians uh, in various passages uh, that refer to citizenship. Uh, There's a passage at the end of chapter 3 where Paul contrasts the ways of the world and the ways of believers in Christ. Let's read Philippians 3 verses 19 through 21. Paul says, quote, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body, unquote. Paul says this as if to say, hey, Roman citizenship is well and good, but we need to separate ourselves from earthly things. Our true citizenship as Christians is in heaven. So anyway, that's where that's one place where citizenship comes into play in the book of Philippians. Anyway, back to Paul. Paul was released and went on his way after he had let them know that he was a Roman citizen. What I think is interesting is the variety of people that, uh, you know, kind of laid the foundation for the church in Philippi. There was Lydia, who was most likely Jewish since she was attending the Sabbath service by the river. She was a successful businesswoman, originally from Thyatira, in, uh, which is in modern-day Turkey. So she was what they would call Asian. Um, then there was a, a slave girl who was... Well, a slave, obviously. And and so, obviously, she was poor. And we don't know where she was from. I'm presuming that she became a Christian after being released from the the spirit of Satan that was uh, possessing her at the time. Uh, Though it actually doesn't explicitly say so in the text. Then we have the jailer, uh, who was, you know, most likely a Roman soldier. So uh, these three, before becoming Christians, had... Really nothing in common. They were from three def- different economic classes, a successful businesswoman, a Roman soldier, a slave. They had three different nationalities. One was Asian, one was Roman, and we don't know about the slave girls. Possibly she was Greek or Macedonian. And then um, they also came from three different religious backgrounds. Uh, one, Lydia was Jewish, we presume, and the slave girl was a cultic, obviously, and because uh, she was, you know, telling fortunes and uh, possessed by the devil. And then the jailer was most likely a worshiper of Roman gods. And yet, through Paul, the Spirit of God brought them together into the kingdom of God, into his holy church. So it is today, the Spirit of God through Christ reaches out to everyone, no matter what their ethnicity, economic status, or even religious background, drawing them to Christ, bringing them into the church, giving them new brothers and sisters. So anyway, that's a bit of historical background that gives us an idea about Paul's relationship to the church in Philippi. He founded the church, as I said, And so we knew the people personally there. 
and in turn, uh, the Church of Philippi uh, financially supported Paul in his work uh, as a missionary. Uh, in fact, the epistle to the Philippians is basically a thank you note to the church at Philippi because of their support of Paul during his ministry and also during his captivity in Rome. Paul wrote this letter while he was under house arrest in Rome, awaiting the results of a trial. The history of how Paul got arrested and ended up in Rome is given in Acts chapter 21 through the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. It's quite a long story. In summary, Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. Then he was moved to Caesarea, which is on the coast of Israel, where uh, the Roman governor Felix lived. Then a couple, uh, a couple of years after that, still in captivity, he was taken by ship to Rome, where, as he's writing this letter, he is under house arrest. He's not in a Roman prison, but in a house which he rented in Rome. But he is under Roman guard and possibly even chained to a Roman guard as he writes this letter to the Philippian church. So that's the situation when Paul sits down and writes these words which begin the epistle to the Philippians. Let's read Philippians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Quote, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Unquote. So, Paul begins his letter to the Philippian church with a standard format for letters, as per the custom of the day, with three basic elements. Uh, we have first the writer or sender of the letter. In this case, it's Paul and Timothy, as it says. We also have who the letter is addressed to. Paul says, Paul identifies them as the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And then we have a greeting. And in this case, the greeting is grace and peace to you, etc. in verse 2. So then, the writers, senders of the letter are Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus as they're identified. Though Timothy is mentioned here as a sender of this letter, everyone pretty much agrees that the contents of the letter were com uh, was composed by Paul. In fact, Paul very quickly goes to the first person singular in the letter, as soon as verse 3 actually, saying, I this, I that. You know, uh, It's quite possible that Timothy physically wrote the letter uh, under Paul's dictation, and maybe that's why he's mentioned here in the prologue of the letter. Paul admits in other epistles that his handwriting is quite bad, and so odds are that he dictated all of the epistles that he is attributed to uh, writing, uh, you know, so he dictated them presumably to someone with better handwriting. Besides possibly being the um, stenographer of the letter, there's another reason Tim Timothy is mentioned here. As we learn at the end of chapter 2 of this epistle, Paul intends to send Timothy to Philippi to visit the church on Paul's behalf. Timothy held a prominent place in Paul's ministry. This is demonstrated by the fact that Timothy is mentioned in the salutation of six of Paul's epistles including here in the Philippians. Uh, the other epistles are 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. And then also Paul wrote two epistles specifically to Timothy. Those are 1 and 2 Timothy, clearly. 
So Timothy was a recipient of, or right there with Paul, for eight of Paul's 13 epistles. If you think about it, the relationship between Paul and Timothy is the perfect example of Christ's great commission being carried out in real life. It is believed that Paul played a role in leading Timothy to Christ. Paul refers to Timothy as his true son in the faith. He does that in 1 Timothy 1-2. And then Paul discipled Timothy in the faith, just as Christ says to do in the Great Commission. And Timothy grew in the faith under Paul's discipleship, such that he also became a disciple of others as the leader of the church in Ephesus. So then, Paul's discipleship of Timothy was, by all accounts, successful, turning Timothy, who, it can be inferred from various passages, was a bit of a shy lad, turning Timothy into a strong leader in the church. Moving on, Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus in verse 1. In this epistle, Paul does not identify himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, as he does in some of the other epistles. Most likely, the reason he doesn't say apostle here is that this letter is more of a personal letter, uh, not a letter of instruction or correction. This is not a letter where Paul's purpose is to assert his authority as an apostle. He's speaking to them as friends and fellow servants of Christ, rather than as their spiritual leader. Although, even in this personal letter, there, there is plenty of instruction. Paul just can't help himself in that regard. Perhaps it's better to describe the tone of the letter as if Paul was their father, rather than an apostle over them. As I said, there's plenty of instruction, the kind of loving instruction a father would give to his children. But there's no tone of, you know, I'm an authority over you, I'm speaking as God to you. There's none of that in, in the letter. The term translated servant in the NIV is a bit of a soft translation of that word. It really should be translated slave because it denotes someone who was literally owned by someone else. It doesn't designate someone who was a paid employee of another. The word here denotes someone whose entire personal interests and ambitions had to be repressed due to loyalty and subservience to his or her master. It's someone whose entire actions were made in service to his or her master. So then, by using that word slave, Paul is defining one aspect of what our relationship to Christ should be. We should see ourselves as literally slaves of Christ Jesus, as someone whose entire actions are made in service to our master. Paul says as much in another passage. Let's read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Here's what it says, quote, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, unquote. Now, in those days, many times the slaves did menial work, but there were some slaves who had great responsibilities in service to their master. The work you did depended greatly on, really, who you were a slave to. So we should count it a great honor to be a slave to the Lord of the universe, the Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So being a slave to such an important person as Christ means that the work we do is critically important and valuable. 
Note Paul's pride in being a slave to Christ. Paul wore his servitude to Christ, his subservience to Christ, as an honor to be trumpeted, to be bragged about, a high privilege. He was excited about it, proud of it. He even proudly opens his letter here, saying, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. So also, we should take pride in our servitude to Christ, our subservience to our Lord, our position as humble slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry said, quote, the highest honor of the greatest apostle and most eminent Christians is to be servants of Jesus Christ, not masters of churches, but servants of Christ, unquote. And as willing slaves to Christ, we should search for the ways best for us to serve our master, to serve Christ by performing the functions in the church set aside especially for us by the Spirit of God. As Paul tells us in the book of Romans, we each have specific gifts according to our strengths and talents, and we should willingly use these gifts as slaves to Christ to further the interests of the kingdom of God. Paul likens our different gifts and talents to the different functions of the parts of the body, each part performing a specific, unique, and necessary function, like the brain, or the hand, or the feet, or the liver, or, you know, I don't know, any other body parts. They're all important and critical in keeping the body alive and functioning. Let's read that passage from the book of Romans. Let's read Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. Quote, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully." Unquote. We have different gifts, Paul says. And so, as slaves to Christ, we need to first discover what our gift, you know, our role, our purpose as the body of Christ, as part of the body of Christ is. And then we need to act on it, put it into practice according to the gifts and talents that God has given us. Moving on, Paul addresses his letter to, quote, all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, unquote. So Paul calls the recipients of his letter, quote, saints in Christ Jesus. The word saints is a bit of a loaded word, you know, in, in our language today, a word that has changed its meaning over time, actually. To the guy in the street, the word saint means one of the few Christians in history that the Roman Catholic Church has canonized. But that's not what Paul meant here. The word translated saint in the Bible is a designation for all Christians, indicating that we all should be sanctified, that we all should be separated from the world. Again, as Paul uses the word saint, he was not designating a few special Christians, but all of us, all Christians, are meant to be uh, considered saints in Christ Jesus. 
In general, as I said, the word means, quote, those who are separated, unquote. And for the Christian, there are two aspects of our separation. First, we are to be separated from the world and the ways of the world in that our morality is different from the morality of the world. Second, we are to be separated in the sense that we are dedicated to the service and worship of God. And it is these two aspects of separation that makes us all saints. It is in these ways that we are made holy. So this is something that we should all consider, all strive for. We should strive to be saints. It's something that should affect our day-to-day lives because we are all called to be saints. We are all called to be holy. So then there are times when we are to separate ourselves from those of the world in certain situations. And we fall into these situations all the time. Perhaps you're at work and in the coffee room or whatever, and uh, people are mocking another coworker. That's probably a situation where you should separate yourself and, and not join in the mockery. We may think that being a saint may only come up on Sunday morning or something, you know, you know entering the holy sanctuary or whatever. But actually, our saintliness is put to the test all the time in everyday situations. So we should strive for this kind of saintliness, the saintliness of, you know, as a Christian, separating ourselves from the taint of the world, setting up a line that you don't cross. There are times when you need to say, you know, world over there, me here, you know. Um, But there is a balance to be drawn, and that makes things a bit difficult for Christians. We're not called, I don't believe, to go live in monasteries and totally be physically separated from the world. Because then how would we bring people to Christ? So there is a balance to be struck. uh, And there are definitely times when we need to separate ourselves as Christians to be saintly, to be holy. And as I said, we do this for two reasons, so that we may not be sullied by the world or tainted by it and so that we may serve God and glorify God with our bodies, and even to communicate to others in a subtle way sometimes that there is a right and wrong way to live in the eyes of God. So this is something that we can and should meditate on at times. How can I be more of a saint as I live my day-to-day life? What things, what situations are keeping me from truly being a saint, someone who's separated from the ways of the world? Or to turn the question around, what things am I doing that, you know, sort of nullify my saintliness, that prove maybe at times that I'm not really a saint? These are all good questions for meditation. So then Paul is writing to these saints, the saints at Philippi, as he says, and specifically, uh, as he terms them, the saints in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, in Christ Jesus? Well, let's meditate on that a bit. It's a phrase that Paul used quite a lot, reflecting his joy and gratitude of being in Christ. It's a phrase that you and I may use, you know, when signing emails or something. There's no incorrect answer to this. Certainly, even the scholars agree that there's a wide range of things that this could mean. So, you know, you might want to meditate on, oh, what does this phrase mean to you? This phrase that says, you are in Christ Jesus. Well, some possibilities are, you know, how about in Christ Jesus, you know, denoting a personal relationship, a a close union with Christ by faith. That would describe being in Christ. 
or in Christ in the sense that we view the world differently, we view our existence differently, we view it you know, from the perspective of being in Christ. For instance, one of the themes of this letter is Paul's joy in the midst of suffering. Such a joy for Paul comes from being in Christ. Paul views the suffering as temporary and for the sake of Christ. Also, in Christ could denote, you know, being part of his mystical body, part of the body of Christ or, or the church. As the church, we are the bride of Christ, so certainly we are in Christ in that way. Um, also, in Christ could, you know, be shorthand for a justifying faith denoting that we are participants in the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. So anyway, those are various ways that, you know, we can be viewed as being in Christ. And as I said, none of those are the exact right answer. Any of them could really apply to this phrase. Moving on to verse 2, the blessing that Paul has for the Philippians is, is, quote, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. This is, I guess you'd call it, kind of a trademark blessing of Paul's. It's found with very slight variations in every single one of his epistles. Grace and peace. What more could you want in life, actually? Grace was a standard Greek greeting. Peace, or shalom, as we would say, is you know the standard Hebrew greeting. So with this, Paul brings the Hebrew and Gentile worlds together through Christ. And though these greetings were used by secular people, by non-Christians and non-Jews, Paul, by including them in all of his epistles, and by specifying that they are grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is investing a full measure of Christian meaning into these two blessings. For Paul, grace is the unmerited salvation that we receive from God through Christ, definitely a Christian meaning of the word, the grace of forgiveness for sins, the grace of being able to be reconciled to God, though we don't deserve to be, the grace that, once we've accepted it, opens a whole universe of God's blessings upon us. And it's a grace which must come first before we can enjoy what Paul mentions next. But order is important here. First comes grace, then peace. We must first accept the grace of God offered through Christ before we can enter into the peace of God that comes through Christ. And for Paul, peace means nothing unless it is the peace of God that comes through Christ, the peace that Christ himself promised in John 14, 27. Let's read that. Quote, uh, Jesus is speaking here. Quote, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid." It's not the fragile peace that the world offers, just as Christ said, I don't give to you as the world gives, but it's an internal everlasting peace, a peace that remains despite external chaos, despite worldly chaos. It's a peace that Paul could offer even as he was chained to a Roman guard and facing, at the moment he wrote this, possible death. Paul later in this epistle gives a great instruction on how we should obtain this peace. 
how we should take hold of this peace. Let's read Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Quote, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus." Unquote. That's a great verse to commit to memory if you haven't already done so. It's a verse that can be directly applied many times in our day-to-day lives. You know, anxiety. Don't be anxious. How many times did that come up in your life? And so, though Paul put this blessing of grace and peace in one form or another in every one of his epistles, it was anything but an empty cliché for him. It was a prayer that Paul had for all of his readers, for, for all believers. So think of it as a prayer that Paul himself is offering up for us. The blessing of grace and peace, a prayer on Paul's part for each of us, A desire that we all experience all the best of spiritual blessings that our existence as Christians has to offer. Grace and peace. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, dot com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.